Take your Bibles out with me this morning and turn to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, let me say that the message this morning is a commercial, okay? Uh, Some of our folks lately have been saying, uh, Pastor, with all that's going on in the world, we sure would like to study the book of Revelation, now, of course, we did this about 12 or 13 years ago on, on Sunday nights, but that's a lot of water under the bridge since then, and uh, I've been requested to do it again, so we will be doing that on Wednesday nights at 645 uh, in the chapel, and so we want to invite you to come out and be a part of that study if you're not involved el- elsewhere on the campus And uh, so this morning, the message is a commercial for that series. And that's why at the top of your study notes page today, you'll see along with message one and the sermon title, it says Wednesday nights. Just emphasize, it'll be the Wednesday night series. I didn't get mixed up on what day of the week it is. I know today's Sunday, but uh, again, just a reminder for you, that will be occurring on uh, Wednesdays. Uh, The title this morning is The Beginning of the End, and the overall series I'm calling The Forecast for the Future. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now when we think about the Beatitudes, we think about the beginning of Matthew 5 where Jesus says blessed, blessed, blessed. A series of Beatitudes. Actually, this is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now folks, we'll learn later on in the chapter that the lampstands are the churches. What a fitting description of churches. We're not the light, but we bear forth the light of Christ in a dark world. So he says, he turned, he he saw one standing in, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In the midst of lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face 
was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And now in verse 9, we have the outline of the entire book of Revelation. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen. That would be chapter 1. Those that are. That would be the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this. That would be chapter 4 to the end of the book. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, speak to us from your word this morning. Teach us your word. And Father, I pray that above all that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory in the midst of his church today. And one day, perhaps even soon, coming for his bride. Until then, may we be found faithful and may we be ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think right now of the true story that Anne Graham Lotz writes about in her book, The Vision of His Glory. She writes the true story of a little orphan boy by the name of Leone. Leone is one of an estimated 35 million abandoned children in a South American country who live in the streets. They survive by begging, stealing, and scavenging. Now in Leone's country, parents who cannot support their children abandon them much like you would, some people would abandon an unwanted kitten or a puppy. These children ranging in ages from 1 to 18 years of age are starved, beaten, raped, and tortured. Sometimes under the cover of darkness, the authorities round them up and simply execute them. They shoot them. Such was Leone's world. He ended up assigned to a government orphanage that housed about 550 other young children. Five months later, he was transferred to another state orphanage. Now folks, what hope did Leone have? None if all of his hope was to come from the state. But God had a future for Leone. You see, a Christian couple prompted by God adopted him into their family and now for the first time in his life, he has a family. He's protected and loved and secure. What a great story of victory and of hope. And folks, that's the message of the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book about victory. Somebody once asked Dr. Billy Graham if he were an optimist or a pessimist. He said, well, I'm, well, well, I'm certainly an optimist. They said, Dr. Graham, with all the years that you have lived and everything that you have seen take place on this earth, how in the world... Can you say that you're an optimist? He said, well, it's easy. I've read the end of the book, and we win. Genesis 1 introduces us to how this world began. Revelation 1 introduces us to how it's going to end. In Genesis, we have the commencement of heaven and earth. In Revelation, we have the consummation of heaven and earth. In Genesis we have the entrance of sin. In Revelation, we have the end of sin. In Genesis, we have the dawn of Satan. In Revelation, we have the doom of Satan. 
Dr. Vance Havner once said, I'm so thankful there's no Satan in the first two chapters of the Bible and there's no Satan in the last two chapters of the Bible. Now what we'll see today is the fact that history is his story. The Christian may be tempted to look at the world today. He reads the headlines of the Middle East, for example, that, that appears to be a powder keg in an absolute shambles. And it certainly appears that something big's about to happen there. I get updates. One of, one of the uh, weekly updates I get, in fact, right now, uh, these updates are coming just about daily. Updates from a Christian ministry that ministers in Israel. Now folks, bear with me a moment. I want to show you what all might be at stake. And I'm going to tie this into the point that I'm making so I'm not just chasing a rabbit. Now the leader of that ministry is a personal acquaintance with Benjamin Netanyahu and also personal acquaintances with the defense minister of Israel. Now, according to him, and I'm only sharing what he states, there's every indication now that sometime this fall, Israel is going to make a strike on Iran to try to disable their nuclear program. They believe that it's now or never to end Iran's nuclear program, regardless of whether or not the rest of the world is with them or not with them. Now, whether he's right or wrong, what do we know? We know that the leader of Iran sees himself as the one to usher in the last Muslim prophet, the 12th imam who will bring forth the Mahdi, who they say is the Islamic savior of the world. And if necessary, they'll bring in the end through mass destruction and chaos and death and then usher in what they refer to as an Islamic utopia. And so Israel is saying the world and the West had better wake up because the nuclear Iran whose current regime sees itself as a link in this chain to bring destruction would be a deadly thing not only for Israel but for the rest of the world. And we know the leader of Iran has said that he envisions a world where Israel has been annihilated and wiped off the face of the map. And so Israel's preparing. Even now they're handing out gas masks, they're opening bomb shelters, they're building new ones. And, and the children who have just begun a new school year are going through constant emergency measure drills. And they're beginning to stockpile various necessary items. I'm also told that right now, busloads of Israeli soldiers are going constantly. They're dropping off these busloads of Israeli soldiers at the Wailing Wall. And the soldiers are gathering there and they're in prayer. They're preparing for something big to happen. Now, folks, just think of the ramifications. Certainly the terrorist groups Hamas and Hezbollah will join in with Iran along Israel's borders. Now, I would assume also, if necessary, there's the potential that Russia and China and North Korea would team up with Iran. I would hope the U.S. and Great Britain would team up with Israel. But any way that you look at it, something big could be on the verge of happening. Now my point is, you look at this whole region of the world and it appears to be on the verge of collapse with the rest of the world being brought into this conflict. Does the book of Revelation have anything to say about that? Yes, it does. It mentions a yet future war of the nations at the end of the tribulation time, the battle of Armageddon, where the nations of the earth, their armies are gathered in the northern portion of Israel in that region uh, uh, known as Megiddon, or the battle of Armageddon. They're going to be gathered there and that's sort of going to be the, the base, the core of operations in that battle. 
So we know eventually, regardless of whatever wars or battles take place now, there is coming that one last battle before Christ returns. You read other headlines. You read about the world economy. We see nations in the headlines right now that are on the verge of financial collapse. There's Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy that appear to be about to collapse. You read about violence all over the globe and when you read all of this stuff it would make you fearful that the world seems out of control. But beginning here in Revelation chapter 1, we see that the world is not out of control from God's perspective. In fact, things are right on schedule. Now, Christians aren't promised an absence of suffering, an absence of trials and tribulations. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. And there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and there'll be all kinds of cataclysmic events that take place but we're promised victory and that's what we begin to see today in the book of Revelation we're going to see a steadfast hope for the Christian now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the subject read with me again beginning in verse 1 John says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now right away we're told that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is a very prophetic book with the main prophetic section beginning in chapter 4. But back to this phrase a minute. The word revelation is literally the word apocalypsis. It refers to something that was previously hidden but is now unveiled. It's now made known. People say all the time the book of Revelation is a book that nobody can possibly understand. But folks, I want you to see that that is not the case. God has not concealed events concerning the uh, the future. He has instead revealed them. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That can be interpreted as an objective genitive, in which case it would mean that Jesus Christ is being unveiled. Or it could be a subjective genitive, meaning that Jesus is the mediator of the events that are about to be unveiled. Now probably it's the latter, as verse 1 goes on to suggest. Jesus is going to unveil future events. Future events are therefore the subject matter. But in the midst of all the events that we see, the bowls of wrath, the trumpet judgments, and the antichrist and the false prophet being revealed, we need to see Jesus Christ in the midst of it all. Revelation is a very Christ-centered book. And so if you read the book of Revelation and you get caught up in all the horrific events and lose sight of Jesus Christ, you've really missed the main point. Also, let me say a word of caution. If you read the events of Revelation and try to dogmatically pinpoint those events with certain things going on in the world at the time, that can be a very dangerous thing. Almost always, when students of the book have tried to do that, they've ended up being wrong. For instance, all through history, there have been countless attempts to identify the Antichrist. The options that people have put forth of who the Antichrist might be are almost endless. For example, one of the more recent suggestions was that the Antichrist is none other than Saddam Hussein. 
But folks, if Saddam Hussein's the Antichrist a few years ago, we hung the Antichrist. So don't get caught up in that foolishness. Keep your eyes on Jesus through the book. And it's not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation we have the picture of the glorified Christ and his program of events for the world. Now with that being said, let me say that the book of Revelation presents a very different picture of Jesus than we see in the Gospels. In the Gospels, he was a man of sorrows. He was rejected and, and acquainted with grief. And they finally put him on a cross and they killed him. In Revelation, he's the glorified Christ. He's the one who comes in all of his power and glory to execute judgment on his enemies and to reward his children. Now notice verse 1 also refers to these events as soon to take place. People say, Pastor, that hadn't happened yet. But you need to keep two things in mind. Number one, the Bible says a thousand years with the Lord is but a day. And so almost two thousand years it's passed. In God's time frame of reference, that's almost no time at all. And secondly, the word can refer to once these events begin to happen, they can unfold very, very quickly, very soon, very rapidly. It may take another 100 or another 500 years for the events to, to begin to unravel, but once the unraveling begins, it's going to happen very, very quickly. The word can refer to that as well. Now in verse 2, John says he saw all this. The apostle John wrote five books in our Bible. There was the gospel of John. And we're told in John chapter 20 that the point of the gospel of John was so that men might see Jesus. They would see uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and, and believe upon him. And by believing on Jesus Christ, they would have salvation. Then there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Epistles, letters that are meant to give the church assurance of salvation. And, and then there's revelation that was given that the saints might be encouraged and comforted. Now verse 3 points out the blessing that one gets from reading this book. Now folks, think about the context of this verse in John's day back then. In John's day back then with Christians suffering all over the Roman Empire to receive a book like Revelation assuring them that God is in control that all the chaos in the world around them and all the trials and tribulations that they're going through is not going to have the final say. But God is going to have the final say. What encouragement that must have been. And so in a congregation where everybody would not have had their own copy of the Word of God, the, the, the leader, the pastor would have stood up and read. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. A promised blessing to those who are going through suffering. Again, that suffering in your life does not have the final say. Because if you're a child of God and you've been saved and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, should the devil throw the very worst at you on the face of the, this earth, what's the Bible say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As Dr. Billy Graham said, we win. We win. While we're going through this world facing trial and tribulation, we have the promise of the Lord with us, giving us a strength beyond anything we have on our own. And one of these days when we die, that's not the end of all things. That's the time we're ushered into the presence of God. He's in charge. And that's the blessing. Now secondly, I want you to see with me the servant. Look at verses 4 and 5 and then 9 through 10. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
Now look down at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Let's think of the servant here writing this. It's John. Now there's an agreement among scholars that none other than the apostle None other than the beloved Apostle John is the author of this book. Now other men by the name of John have been suggested but no other one really fits the bill. Now who was this man? Well he was one of the original 12 disciples and that meant that he had spent three years walking with Jesus. Now let's go back a moment and look at his call into service. In Mark chapter 1, the Bible says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Their lives were forever changed. Look how he describes himself in verse 9. He describes himself as your brother. Folks, that's humility. You see, I want you to remember that not only was John one of the original 12, but he was in that inner circle. Peter and James and John and, and on that occasion of the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus took the inner circle he took those three to the Mount of Transfiguration with him and allowed them to get a snapshot image of his future glory. He had also become a leader in the church at Ephesus and was held in high esteem throughout all of Asia and he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Boy, he could have played off of that. But he simply identifies himself as your brother. Your brother. And he writes from a pastor's heart. I think of 1 John. He writes that they might have joy, that they might have fellowship, that they might have assurance. And he emphasizes a good bit that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we need to pray for one another and encourage one another and help one another. But what I really want you to see about this servant is his suffering. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says he was a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now the tribulation spoken of here is not the great tribulation that we'll study later on in the book. Rather it's the general hardship that we've got to go through as believers. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Peter addressed tribulation also. Folks, it is a fact of life that believers, if we're faithful and stand upon biblical convictions, we're going to face persecution. And the reason being is because the world's values and God's values are so different. The world's got everything upside down and we're trying to live right side up in an upside down world. And because of that, we might be opposed. And such persecution and op uh, such persecution and opposition calls for, for perseverance. And John mentions that he's a fellow partaker in all of that too. He knows what it's like to go through tough times and to suffer. In verse 9 he speaks of himself being on the island of Patmos. Patmos. Patmos was sort of like the Alcatraz of his day. It was 10 miles long and 6 miles wide and it sat out in the Mediterranean Sea. Now tradition says that the emperor Domitian tried 
to kill John, to try to silence John. But then he thought better of it and he thought instead he would exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And and the Isle of Patmos was like a slave labor camp where they would work in the mines there. And Domitian concluded that by sending John there, he could silence the message that John was preaching. But hallelujah, he didn't. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So Domitian did not silence John at all. But folks, I want you to see this morning that Christians are not immune from suffering. We suffer just like everybody else in the world suffers. Some of you have got loved ones that have been recently diagnosed with cancer. Some of you have lost a parent. Maybe you've lost a child through tragedy. Maybe you've lost a job and the source of your income. And as we're gathered in here today to worship, you're going through a deep valley in your life and you're hurting and you're suffering. We've got to remember that since Genesis 3, we're part of a fallen world. We sing this is my father's world, but in a sense it's not the world that our father created in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the the coming redemption not only for the children of God, but God's going to make a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells, but this earth that we're a part of now, even believers go through tough times and we suffer. And as we do so, we're not to think that that's a strange thing. It's just part of life. But the difference in a Christian suffering is the fact that we don't go through it alone. Jesus has said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Now I want you to notice also that John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day was Sunday. You'll remember that the Jews who had become Christians moved the day of worship from the Sabbath, the seventh day, to Sunday, the first day, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's John. He's lonely. He's probably cold. He's suffering. He's performing slave labor. And yet he didn't use his circumstances as an excuse for not worshiping. When it was the Lord's day, John says he was in the spirit. In other words, he wasn't just simply going through the motions, but he was in a spirit of worship on the Lord's day, and the Lord spoke to him. Folks, it's an indication to us that when we come to the house of God and we worship, God can show up in our midst and sometimes do some pretty awesome things. We don't need to use hardship in our life as an excuse from staying away from worship. Both privately and publicly, we need to be a part of worship. Because if God doesn't change our circumstances, God can change our heart. He can transform our lives from the inside out. Now the third thing I want you to see with me is the Savior. Pick up reading with me again in verse 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then down in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Verse 12 says that John turned to see this voice that he heard that was speaking to him. Now folks, if you're like me, you probably wonder sometimes what the Lord Jesus must look like. And you know every culture wonders about that. And usually in every culture they have pictures of Jesus Christ that looks just like the folks in that culture. But Jesus, being a Jew, in all probability, had dark hair and dark olive skin. But folks, that's not the image of Jesus that John sees here. He sees the glorified Christ. And by the way, I think it's the way that we're going to see Jesus one day. Because in 1 John 3, 2, the Bible says, We shall see him as he is, not as he was. When John turned around, he saw seven golden lampstands and those... Uh, again are going to be described later in the chapter as the church and right in the middle of the seven golden lampstands John saw Jesus and what an awesome image it was. And where's Christ? Right in the midst of his church. It ought to be a reminder to us every week as we come to church with our family and friends and and we're fellowshipping together. Guess who else is here with us? Jesus. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. He's here with us. Now beginning in verse 13, we see Jesus' attire and it's reminiscent of the high priest garments in the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus is. He's our high priest. The book of Hebrews talks about that. In verse 14, his hair hair and his head are described white like wool. That's a picture of purity and age and wisdom. You've seen pictures before of those old-timey English judges with their white wigs symbolizing age and maturity and wisdom. Verse 14, he says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Perception is the idea. Now, I can remember a few times getting in trouble as a little boy, and my dad would look over at me with those eyes, and I'd have to say, you know, in that moment, he was very Christ-like. Eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 15, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. Uh, The idea here is a judgment. The imagery of a fiery bronze feet is a picture of one who's running throughout the world executing his judgment against the nations. But folks, not just the nations, but the Bible says every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 15 says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. The authority of His word overrides everything else. Some of you have told me about standing beside the waterfalls there at Niagara Falls and and how awesome the sound of those waters is. uh, how How awesome the sound is as you hear the roar of those waterfalls that drowns every other sound out. And again, an image of the authority of his voice. And I think of what he said in the Great Commission when he said, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. Verse 16, he talks about stars. In verse 20, we're told the stars are angels. Now the Greek word simply means messenger and it can refer to either a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. And so interpreters divide. Some think that maybe it's an indication that every church has its own guardian angel. Others say it's the human messenger, the pastor of the church, who would get up week in and week out and deliver God's message to the people. Now you didn't know that your pastor was an angel, did you? Now, no jokes about 
a fallen angel, okay? But just like he walks in the midst of the churches, he holds the stars. He holds his messengers in the palm of his hands and they're subject to his power and authority just like the churches are. Verse 16 says, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Again, a reference to his word. Christ is going to judge the nations with his word. His enemies will be defeated by his word. Verse 16, he goes on to say here, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Folks, it's a picture of the glory of Christ. I want you to notice in verse 17 what John does. He fell down as a dead man. Now, Now keep in mind, this is the same John who leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. Same characters. The characters have not changed. They're both the same persons, Jesus and John. But the difference is that Jesus is no longer veiled in his humanity. Remember, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so John sees Jesus in all of his radiant glory and he falls down at his feet. Boy, now, folks, that ought to say something to us about the way we approach Jesus. Some people just speak casually about him being the man upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. Some people say, man, I hope when we go to church today that Jesus Christ will show up in our midst. Really? Do you think we could, could, could we really bear it if Jesus really showed up in all of his glory? I don't think we'd be laughing and joking and taking things lightly. John saw Jesus and here's the the apostle John. And what's John do? John falls at his feet as a dead man. It reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he went into the temple and he saw that vision of God and and God's train, the the train of his robe filling the temple and all the smoke and and the seraphim flying around. What were they crying out? Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the prophet Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, fell down on his face just like Johnny. And he said, woe is me, I'm undone. Isaiah thought he was going to die. And John here must have thought he was going to die too. Folks, it's a reminder to us what an awesome God we serve. And we need to be reminded of that when we come into worship. But I want you to notice what Jesus does with a tender touch. Jesus says to John, John, don't be afraid. Now, folks, what a lesson that is. The awesome Lord who's going to be a source of fear and terror to his enemies and to the nations is a great source of comfort to those who know him. Romans 8.31 says, If God be for us, who can be against us? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 closes by saying there's no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. Here's John. He's suffering. He's going through tough times. The emperor, the ruling government has exiled him. He's lonely. But Jesus shows up and says, John, you're mine. You don't need to fear. Same message the angels gave to the women on that first Easter morning when they went to the tomb to finish anointing the body of Jesus thinking that Jesus was still in the tomb dead but Jesus, little did they know, had had risen from the dead and they got to the temple and they looked in and they saw his garments folded up and neat and laying there and the angel was there and they were afraid and the angel said, don't be afraid, you're looking for the living among the dead. He's not here, he's risen just like he said, go and tell his disciples. Don't fear. Are you living in fear today? Do you fear the present? Do you fear the future? Do you fear what might happen to you if today you died and passed into eternity? Do you know what would happen to you? 
Do you live without peace? Do you live without comfort? Do you live without fear? Well, I want to say to you, if you're a child of God and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you don't have to fear because, again, your, hand, your life is right in the palm of the hands of the Lord Jesus and you're safe and secure in Him. Folks, we don't have to walk about like the unbeliever. Unbelievers walk about, I mean, think about what they're doing. They, they put all their hope, I guess, in this world. They're laying up their treasures in this world. They're thinking there's a future in this world. And they click on the news and they see troubling headlines. They open their newspaper and they see troubling headlines or they go on the internet reading about things that are happening in the world and they're scared to death about what they and their children are going to face. And I'm here to tell you, as a child of God, we don't have to live in fear. God is with us now and forevermore. Do you have that assurance? Do you know this Savior that John is talking about here in verse 5 and 6? He says, He has released us from our sins by His blood and made us into a kingdom of priests. Think of that being released. Every sin you've ever committed, everything you've ever, ever done that you might be afraid of having to face the consequences of that one day. If you're a child of God and you're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been set free. You've been released from your sins. And you will never face condemnation over that sin. You're free in Christ. Amen. I want you to bow with me a moment this morning. I want to ask you today, do you have that assurance? Do you know that you have been set free from your sin? Has there ever been a time in your life that you've been converted? I didn't, I didn't say simply come forward in a church service and, and fill out a commitment card. I didn't even say enter the baptismal waters. But do you know that there's been a time in your past that the Holy Spirit has gripped your heart and you became very much aware of your sin and lostness and your need of a Savior. And you surrendered your life to Jesus and He changed you from the inside out, you were born again. Do you know that that's part of your experience? If you don't, and you'd be honest enough to admit, Pastor, you know, if I were to die this afternoon, I can only assume that I would be shoveled out into a Christless eternity. I don't know that I am forgiven. I need Christ. Would you be honest enough to admit that this morning? And I promise you, I'm not, I'm not going to call on you. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, If you'd say, Pastor, I don't know that I ever have been released from my sins and forgiven and saved. Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you slip up your hand to where I can see it? Pastor, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I need to know that I have peace with God. Would you slip up your hand quietly right there where you are? Just slip it up right now. Right now. Everybody in this place is evidently saying right now. We, we had somebody in the early service raising their hand, but everybody in this service 
is apparently saying, Pastor, I know I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm glad. Hallelujah. I want you to notice what John goes on to say here. You've been saved for a purpose, to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They represent God to the people by sharing the good news, sharing the word of God, and they represent the people to God through intercessory prayer. And that's what we need to be doing. Not simply sitting and soaking, but being a kingdom of priests to our God. Is that what your life is about? It's what it's supposed to be about. Maybe you need to come to this altar this morning in a public way and say, God, you know what? I'm falling down on my responsibilities being a a kingdom of priests. I'm just soaking in this great salvation and enjoying it and just kind of keeping this free gift of eternal life for myself. And I need to start living to impact others. Would you make a commitment to do that today? Perhaps there's others that you have been carrying deep-seated fears around in your heart. And through Revelation 1, you you see clearly now that history is His story. He's sovereign God and everything's in His hands. And maybe your prayer needs to be, God, just help me to rest secure in knowing that I'm your child. If the world falls apart, If life comes unraveled and falls apart, I belong to you. God, give me that confidence. Father, work now in the hearts of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. I'm going to ask you to stand, and if you don't have the assurance of eternal life, please step out of the pew where you are. Come down the aisle closest to you. I'd love to pray with you. Either one of the two Kevins here this morning, others, we would love to pray with you. If you do need to come to this altar and just say, Lord, I'm fearful about some things, and I need you to erase this fear and give me confidence and assurance and peace. He'll do that. Trust Him. If you need a church home where you can worship and fellowship with other believers and gain strength through them, you step out and come forward as well. We'd like to pray with you. We'd like to be your church family.